It's the Smart Driving Cars podcast. Thanks for being with us. This edition is sponsored by the Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF, symbol MOTO. For more information, head to MOTOETF.com. Technical support is provided by CARTS, the Corporation for Automated Road Transportation Safety, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to safe and high-quality mobility for all. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with the Faculty Chair of Autonomous Vehicle Engineering at Princeton University, Alan Kornhauser. Hi, Alan. Hi, Fred. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, and we are happy to have with us New York Times reporter and author Cade Metz. Thanks for taking the time, Cade. Glad to be here. Thank you. Cade covers driverless cars, artificial intelligence, robotics, and more. He's also the author of Genius Makers, the Mavericks who brought AI to Google, Facebook, and the world. We'll begin with a piece you wrote that's in print today. Can Tesla data help us understand car crashes? Give us the overview here, Cade. Well, I, I think that this may be something that people in the industry are, are aware of, but maybe even there, uh, you know, some are not. Um, in building these assisted driving systems along the lines of Tesla Autopilot, um, companies like Tesla collect vast amounts of data. Um, this is video of what happens on the road, uh, as well as all sorts of other detailed data describing the operation of the car. Um, sometimes this detail goes right down to the millisecond. Uh, how the, the steering wheel, uh, you know, the, the position of the steering wheel at any given moment, um, the speed of the car, whether or not something like autopilot is engaged or not. And Tesla at least, you know, collects a lot of this data in the event uh, of a crash. And what this piece is about is about how this type of data can really change the way we think about crashes and understand crashes. It not only describes in sharp detail the way a, a Tesla has behaved in the event of a crash, but also in some ways, the way other cars on the road or even pedestrians and, and other objects on the road behave in that moment. Because you have this, this video of the crash scene in front of the car, behind the car, uh, and we show this in detail um, with an example taken from a Tesla car. We know from the airline industry, my goodness, if we didn't have black boxes in airplanes, they, they wouldn't be as safe as they are now. I, I'll make that, I'll, I'll go out on a limb and, and say that, okay? Simply because we learn so much from those things. And, and, and now to have the opportunity to, to have the sensors there and uh, the opportunity to record the data at essentially almost no cost and to then disseminate it and have it stored for, again, very little expense. My goodness. And, and, and maybe not even just with respect to the crashes, but what about near misses? What, what about that? What about, you know, what happened when there wasn't a crash? What went well? What did we just miss and all that? Just tr treasure trove of data, right? It makes sense if you're thinking about safety, right? But this is more complicated than it might seem. You know, this, this data for the most part is something that Tesla keeps to itself. Um, there are questions over who the data belongs to. And some, some have raised you know, privacy concerns uh, if this data is shared indiscriminately, which is, you know, which is, is certainly a point worth, worth making. Uh, so these are all sort of question marks hanging over this, this data. But when it comes to safety, it makes good sense to, to share it more than it has been in the past. And, you know, there's, there, there are all these questions over how safe autopilot is and other similar systems um, that, um, that can be answered through this data. And it, at the moment, for the most part, it's the companies that collect the data that have access to it and, and are not, uh, you know, sharing the insights with the rest of the industry, with regulators, um, and others trying to figure out what we need to do to make the road safer. 
it would seem to me that, that the privacy issue is something that can be easily addressed. I mean, one doesn't really care who it is that, 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 that's involved there or whose car it is. It's, it's more about, you know, the physics, the, the, what happened, what really happened. And, and, and to, to, have, to have the data being gathered and then being held tightly by a, a company and not shared. I mean, it just should be shared. Everybody should share it. We should be, we should be sharing safety data. We should be wor all working together on it because, because it helps everyone, right? But at the same time, you don't want this indiscriminately shared with police departments without a warrant, right? I mean, the, this is the video data shows everything that's going on around the car, right? And they're so there, there are potential concerns that that's showing everything that's going on in the on the road around the car, and you just want to think about those issues as you develop a framework for sharing this data. And that's what we need, right? There's not a framework in place uh, for sharing this data. That not a lot of people are talking about the fact that this data even exists. Uh, it's unclear how much is collected, how long it's stored. Um, right now, it's it's pretty much governed by the agreement that the car owner has with the manufacturer, um, and there needs to be more of a framework that would allow companies like this to share this with with uh, with you know researchers, police departments, insurance companies that can benefit from this data. Policymakers don't they don't they need to know you know what the what is really going on? I mean, we have redaction capability to video cam data from police officers and so on. I mean, one one must have a a, a plethora of, of of ways to deal with this. And here, this is this is a trove of information that that really will help everybody. Correct. Well. <laughs> I was going to say, is the argument against it from a company's point of view, a Tesla's point of view, that uh, we've invested in all of this technology and we're going to be better than everybody else? It's ours, that, that kind of thing. Is that uh, their, the argument? Well, um, public companies operate in ways that put them in the best light, right? So a company like Tesla, you know, is insisted that autopilot makes the road safer, makes their cars safer. Um, they're only going to want to put out information that buttresses that claim. Um, you put out this data, it shows both sides, right? It's going to show when, when the driver is at fault, when others on the road are at fault. It's also going to show, and you see this in the example we used in our piece, when autopilot is at fault as well. Um, and you know, public companies are reluctant to show when they're at fault, you know, where the flaws are in the technology. And that's, that's part of the larger problem with autopilot um, and some of these other systems is that you know, Tesla is insistent that this makes the road safer. Meanwhile, you know, there are all sorts of crashes. There are hundreds of crashes that this technology have been, have been involved in over just the past year. And, um, you know, it's unclear what exactly um, is going on. Uh, looking closely at this type of data can help. You're right, policymakers and so many others understand what the reality is. We've been pleading here on this on this podcast for years for Tesla to, to release the data to an independent reviewer, you, me, whatever, any somebody to, to take a look so that in fact one can has the opportunity to put the information out there on both sides. I would hope Tesla looks at the data and sees where they're lacking and uses that to try to improve their their, their system. I, I can't imagine that they wouldn't. I mean, it would. I mean, well, um, that's pretty much why the data is collected, right? That this data can be right. used to to uh, to modify and improve these systems um, in many many different ways. That's why it's it's being collected. Um, um, but right. you're right. For us outside the company. It's difficult to know what it actually shows. Yeah, it, but to, to us, it seems like it's it's a it's a no-brainer. Put it out to a, an independent group. You choose what the independent group, maybe two independent groups, whatever, to put it out there to basically have it um, have it peer-reviewed. 
I mean, as we do in academia all the time, or at least we hope we do in academia all the time. Right. I mean, this is, this is uh, needless to say, an important issue, right? The safety on the roads. Yeah. Um, um, you know, as we have this discussion, um, uh, the safety of, of our roadways is not getting better, it's getting worse. Um, and, you know, as the latest NHTSA data showed, latest data from the federal regulator shows, um, you know, crashes are going up, uh, not down. And uh, it's unclear why this is happening. This type of data can help help us deal with that problem. In our piece, um, uh, a guy named uh, Matt Wansley, who's a professor, a law professor in New York, and um, in the past worked for an autonomous uh, car company, is calling for companies to collect this data and, um, and for regulations that require this data to be shared on a larger scale, right? This isn't just a way of understanding how autopilot works. Mm -hmm. It's a way of understanding crashes writ large on the road, potentially, um, if the data can be collected and shared and analyzed. Is the, the difference between Tesla? The, I'm sorry, Alan, yeah, go ahead. The aspect of the, the safety is really one that, you know, with the latest res, uh, estimates out of um, out of NHTSA about the about tw the beginning of 2022, I mean, the numbers are really are really bad because because things had been going down until uh, when we first started reporting about two, 2012 was the bump year where it went up. I don't know, 5%, 10%, the, the, the rate per VMT was at 0.98 per whatever, whatever VMTs, and it went up to 1.04 or 5, I don't recall the number is. We are now at 1.27, whatever, you know, deaths per vehicle miles traveled, whatever. That's almost a 30% increase in 10 years when we've had supposedly technology being introduced into these vehicles, as Tesla would like to tell us, really improves things. We don't know whether it does or it doesn't, or, you know, that the D and all that stuff, and we really wish we did. I mean, that is a non-trivial number, 30%. 7% just year over year. From the, this year over year, but years. over you would hope that over 10 years, there'd be some ups and downs, da, 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 you know, da, 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 brownie in motion, whatever. But that's that's a non-trivial number per vehicle miles traveled, which seems to be somewhat of a basis in their different vehicle miles and you fast. And we know that we know that in fact, you know, with, with COVID, or at least we think we know people who who knows, speeds probably went up, uh, uh, frustrations went up, misbehaviors probably went up, who knows whether or not there's more of this or whatever and all the other things that we can speculate about. But, but the behavior of, of us driving has, has, gone, has gone in reverse since almost in 10 years. What what separates Tesla from the automaker, other automakers here? Why why the focus on them? Is it the connectivity combined with the cameras and sensors? What what is it? Well, they've been doing this longer for one, and, uh, and um, so they were you know essentially the the first to to really make a play for this type of system and to get it on the road. And their ambitions are greater, right? They see this as a way as a path towards um, autonomous driving, uh, not just as an assisted driving system. They see this as a, as a way of continuing to expand that, this technology and eventually get these cars to autonomy. And that does require um, a, a lot of data collection. Um, you see this, for instance, through people who are testing uh, what's called their FSD system, which is kind of the successor to autopilot, which um, uh, can be used on, on city streets. There's a, a limited number of Tesla owners who are testing this system. And I, I've been talking to, a, to many of them. Now they go back, uh, they go back home and, and, um, and their car connects to Wi-Fi. And there are just gigabytes and gigabytes of data that get downloaded from these cars um, overnight as Tesla looks to understand you know, how this is working. Um, and then potentially, presumably uses that data to improve and modify the system, right? Um, this, this data can be used in very pointed ways um, to improve the system. This is the way we do 
recognition of what's on the road. Um, you know, we use what are, what are called neural networks um, where you need lots and lots of data to train these, these types of systems to, for instance, see a pedestrian, um, to, to recognize other cars on the road and other objects on the road. This is, this is you know, the material that's needed to build those systems is data, real data from the road. Um, and then all the statistical data uh, alongside um, that video data can be used in other ways as well. So they're, they're an ambitious company um, using the latest technology that requires the data. Um, and you know, they're, they're willing to push the, the edge of the envelope, so to speak, in a way that some of the other car makers uh, do not. Um, uh, a lot of the other car makers, although they might collect some of this data, they claim they don't, they don't ever send it over the air. Um, uh, Tesla does, uh, not only in the event of crashes, but th there can be other cases where they gather this data. Another recent article that you wrote is headlined, Lyft unveils self-driving car service in Las Vegas, parenthesis with caveats. The lead sentence, self-driving car services are popping up across the country, but they are not what they seem. Give us the insight here. Right. I mean, uh, you know, it was a relatively small piece, but it was an effort to say, although multiple companies have announced what they call self-driving services, these are not services that can drive anywhere um, on their own without, um, you know, without boundaries. Um, in many cases, like this one that, that Lyft just announced, they still have safety drivers in the cars um, who, who are there to take over in the event that anything goes wrong. Um, we still don't really have a service other than one in Arizona and there as well, what people understand, need to understand is that there are restrictions, um, there are caveats. Um, if you've ever been to the suburbs of Phoenix where that service is, the roads are, are enormously wide. Pedestrians are few. Um, you know, you're not gonna get snow. Uh, you know, there, the, it is geographically constrained and that's one of the other ways um, you know, these services need to be built. Um, you know, meanwhile, there's this race amongst these companies to make it seem like they're, they're putting these technologies out into the world. That's the way that they attract the, the, the talent they need to build these technologies. It's the way they, they need to attract the, the funding they need um, to build these services, right? But the reality is, is we're still waiting for even these geographically restricted services to really be available um, to, to a wider audience. Um, you know, for instance, me as a reporter, I cannot get in, into, these, into these cars without drivers uh, yet, uh, whether it's Waymo or it's, uh, or it's Cruise in San Francisco. Um, you know, I'm still waiting for the moment when you know, they will allow somebody like me to spend a lot of time in these cars and, and really give people a firm idea of what they they can and cannot do. And you're saying this well, this is going to be years, maybe decades before that comes. Well, to before it's pervasive, before it's commonplace, right? The way you have to do this now is is you have to pick a a, a particular geography, and you drive around with a car with a sensor um, with multiple sensors on it. But the main sensor is is a lidar sensor, a light sensor that can you know, essentially send light from the car um, and it bounces off all its surroundings and it comes back. In that way, you can build a detailed three-dimensional map of a geography, um, you know, a neighborhood in San Francisco, for instance. And the car then uses that um, to know exactly you know, what it's dealing with as it drives around San Francisco. Once you build that 3D map, these companies test for months and months and months um, to ensure that these, these systems are safe and that they can, they can act reliably, you know, at least in this, this limited geography. That takes a while. Um, so what you're going to see is these services in particular areas um, will, be, will be available 
but then they're, these companies are going to have to go to a new area, a new city. They're going to have to map again. They're going to have to test again. They're still going to be restricted. They're still going to shut down when the weather is poor, um, when there's too much rain, um, for instance. When there's too much fog, they will stop operating. Um, and so the dream of having a car that can drive anywhere on its own, that is still a long way off. There are going to be restrictions, um, whatever those restrictions might, might be. Uh, there are going to be restrictions for a while. Well, what, what we like to argue here is that the car that I drive has restrictions on it, too. That I don't know, last winter, I think uh, the governor of New Jersey at least uh, twice or three times said, uh, stay home, okay? There's too much snow out there. Wait until we get out there and shovel it before you go out. So I think, to me, the, the, the problem has been the, your, what I like most about your article is the failure to identify that there are really two markets here. There's a market so we don't crash and we do that. And then there's the other thing that's the one we're being driven around and, and we're just, you know, getting a ride for the mobility aspect. And, right. and they're two different things because, in the, in, you know, whenever I hop into United Airlines at Newark Airport, I don't go knocking on the, on the, on the door and say, hey, let me help you pilot. You know, I mean, I don't even know if there's a pilot there. Maybe there isn't. You know, right. I just go for the ride. And in some sense, you know, that, that's the business there. And I guess we like to argue why, because we're trying to get these guys to come to New Jersey. Um, you know, yes, uh, it's okay if you have restrictions, you know, do it for us for 350 days a year, not 365.25. My goodness, you do it for us for 350 days in the year when the weather's okay, we're going to be like happy campers. And maybe we don't want to go everywhere. Maybe you want to serve for people who, you know, don't have very good alternatives. I mean, the, the one thing about, about people in Arizona, how many cars does each person have? I mean, they have more. You, you don't move there unless you bring cars with you. I mean, whereas in places like Trenton, Newark, Camden, a lot of places in Jersey, boy, you know, uh, they, you don't have, they don't have a car and they can't get to, I mean, the, the alternative is to walk. So we think we have a market here for this. And, and maybe let's not try to do it for everybody yet. Let's. It'd be great if we could, if we could be Frank Sinatra of this thing. You know, we do it. You know, in Arizona, we can do it everywhere. I don't think if you do it in Arizona, you can do it everywhere. So it's not even a good place to start. Right. And don't even try Manhattan, please. I mean, don't you want to be crazy? Don't even do Brooklyn. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how we can, you know, put some sense into this thing. But but when we look at where where there's a market for the mobility piece and then try to serve that market at least somewhat better than than the way that it's currently served and 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 that way get our feet on, on underneath it what do you think absolutely and that's one of the reasons these companies are in in san francisco right there's more of a market there you know people right. use uh, robo um, tax you know ride handling services um right. the way they don't in arizona um, and you're right, there's nothing wrong with restrictions, um, but let's talk about them, right? Yeah. Let's, let's, let's reset expectations. You know, the fact of the matter is, this is a really, really hard thing to do. And, yes. um, you know, and when it comes to, you know, this goes back to what we were talking about before, policymakers need information um, to figure out how to how to govern these services. And, um, you know, as it stands, it, the, the expectations are still out of whack. And um, if, you know, I, I had a moment last week, I was in a, um, a one of the Waymo uh, cars um, in San Francisco. And, and again, they, they will not let me in the cars without a driver. So there's still a safety driver. And, you know, you get a reporter in there, it's, you know, they, it's, a, it's a particular route. They don't want anything to go wrong. Um, and, uh, you know, so we're on this route and I'm chatting with one of the Waymo employees and we, we're, we're heading down the street and, and there's a traffic cop, okay, who is in the middle of the road directing traffic. Now, and you know, Waymo will tell you, we, we, we are now able to deal with traffic cops. You know, when they're, when they're waving you through, we can recognize that. Well, 
we get to this traffic cop and the traffic cop is waving us through and the car stops, right? And the, and the, and the traffic cop waves more and, and more vehemently and the car doesn't go anywhere. And eventually the safety driver has to disengage and, and go forward. Um, it didn't recognize what the, what the cop was trying to, to tell us, right? These are, that's, you know, that's just one example um, you know, of the type of thing that you and I can deal with just by second nature, right? We see the wave of that hand, we know what that means. Um, you know, in, you can, it's very easy to say, you know, we, we have built technology that can deal with that, but actually getting it to work is a hard thing. You know, taking these, these AI models and deploying them in the real world, we've made tremendous progress. Um, and you see that with these cars. But these, these little edge cases like that, they call them industry, are really hard to deal with. Right. And, and you know, I, I sort of, when my students point out stuff like that, I sort of tell them, well, okay, maybe the first car doesn't go through there. But of course, the information is sent back to, to the command of, of uh, the fleet managers, and they now know that that intersection has a traffic cop. So now the routing to wherever you were going should go around that. And not and go to places where there aren't traffic cops. If the, if that's if that's what's what's the holdup, you know, there's a lot of discussion about how how poorly these things will work in 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 uh, in, in work zones and so on. And my goodness, um, you know, uh, avoid the work zone. Okay, uh, in, in a sense, you know, the the, the 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 trying to make this thing perfect for everything. When you say it's going to be, you know. <laughs> generations i forgot exactly your quote in the article as to when it, they're going to be largely it's going to be very long time and look at how long it got us to be able to drive a car you know even you know easily across the country it took more than you know 50 years from from you know 1887 to uh to whatever you know so Relax a little. Let's let's try to get these things useful in some places to provide mobility for people who really need it, at least some of the time, and and do some value as opposed to it just being you know a nice selfie or um, you know a, a joy ride or an amusement ride. I mean you know the the objective of the driverless to me is to provide improved mobility. Uh, in other words, when somebody looks at the ways they can get from places they need to it's better in these markets and i just don't think that they've done a very good job of doing that okay i, I think the places where they i i also made made the comment with respect to gm crews only operating at, at night you know between midnight and five or whatever the, their hours are i thought that was brilliant for them to do that why because mooney's not running so if you really need to go from A to B and you don't have a car, guess what? You can't call up a bus or call up the whatever and say, hey, turn it on. You can have one of these things take you because it's operating then. So in fact, the operating at, at, at that time of, of, of day, time of night, is actually an enormously valuable societal thing that they're delivering to, to San Francisco and not something that they should make, think they make an excuse for doing it because it's easier or something. I, I'd, I'd, I'd flip it. I'd say, my goodness, yeah, you know, you're actually providing some public good out of this thing. But otherwise, somebody would have to walk or, you know, get a neighbor out of bed or whatever. Your point is know. taken. Your point is taken, but the fact of the matter is that you know the average person in San Francisco can't use it at this point, right? It, you know, it's a, it, you know, it's unclear how many people are actually using the service, have access to it. So you're right in the long term, but yeah. in the short term, one of the reasons, if not the main reason, they're doing that is because it is easier, and, and you get. But that's it makes sense too, right? You yeah. start in these that's limited fine. situations. When, um, when it's safer and you get comfortable and then you expand and, and, and you prove that you can do it in a little bit more complicated situation and so on and so forth. Yeah, I, I think I crawled before I walk, before I ran. I <laughs> now, I'm, I can, now I'm back to walking pretty soon and I'll be back to crawling. Oh, well, right. whatever, what can, what can we do here? But it, it, is, it is really, really interesting with respect to all of that. Um, 
your your article with respect to to Vegas sort of also implied the my goodness it is going to take a while for all this. I mean, what do you see as the major motivators that get this thing moving a little bit stronger, faster? I mean, we've been waiting around a while on this thing, haven't we? Uh, uh, we've been talking about this for a while. Do you, do you have any suggestions on those things? Well, I mean, um, again, it is it is such a hard, hard thing to do. And I think that that is what people still don't realize. Um, you know, this is not this is not like building a smartphone app and you know putting it on the Play Store and, and distributing it, right? This, this is this is extremely difficult. Um, especially when you consider that lives are at stake. Um, uh, you know, the, what would seem simple to you or I when it comes to driving down the road, it's very difficult um, to get machines to do that. Um, and, and even if you're able to do it, then the question becomes, can you really make a, a, a build a viable business around the technology? Um, what's also clear and that these companies weren't uh, necessarily open about before is that as you deploy these services, you need people, and you alluded to this, back in a data center overseeing everything, right? There are going to be cases where the car gets, gets into a situation it can't deal with, and it's going to need help from a remote operator, okay? And so you've got to hire people who are going to respond when the car needs help, right? That's, you know, that's part of these services as well. In addition to, you know, the hardware that's on these cars, the Waymo cars have 29 different sensors on the car, right? And LiDAR, for instance, is not, not cheap. It's getting cheaper, but it's not cheap. So these, these cars are expensive. The labor, you know, people don't think about it. You need the labor on the back end in the data center ready to respond when these cars get into trouble, right? You've got to pay those people. Um, and you know, and, and as it stands, ride hailing is a, is, a, is a business with small margins. And there's all this stuff that needs to be worked out, um, you know, and, but at, at the front of it all is that building this technology is, is hard and, and ensuring that it's safe is hard. And that, sh that should be the primary focus, right? And, and it is for most of these companies. That is, and, and you know, kudos to, to Waymo and uh, GM Cruise for essentially biting the bullet and putting them out there without drivers in at least Arizona and San Francisco some of the time under the constraint. I mean, can you imagine sitting in the, in the board meeting or whatever trying to say, hey, do we pull the, pull the driver? I mean, that's like betting the ranch that the thing's going to work because as we know, you know, the one Elaine Herzberg crash of Uber, I mean, decimated their, their fundamental interests at trying to, to do Uber driverlessly and ended up, we, we know what the results of that was and that's one crash. And so you can imagine the people around the, around the table at that time saying, hey, hey yo, you know, and, and to, to, to decide to do it. So there's a, there's just an enormous, enormous um, uh, activation energy that you need or, or knowledge that you really are safe because, because if, uh, if it turns a little against you and mother nature is, is really tough on these things, um, you know, uh, um, you're in trouble, right? Absolutely. You know, there's another piece uh, in, also in the uh, newsletter, Alan, and another article from the Times titled uh, Driverless Cars Shouldn't Be a Race. And that's uh, from the Times. That, that wasn't one that you wrote. You may have had some input. I don't know. That is, that is uh, from our tech uh, newsletter writer, um, Shira Obede, and, um, and I'm quoted in the piece. Yes. Um, and she makes a, a good point, right? And, and I alluded to this earlier. This is, a, in a weird way, a race, right? And it's what it is really, it's a race for engineering talent and a race for funds. Um, you know, this, like I said, this problem is really difficult to solve. And 
in order to solve it, you need tremendous amounts of talent and money. And so that's what's going on here. And that's why these companies make these claims. And that's why they're determined to get these services out first. And they need help from regulators, right? The regulators have to allow these services on the road. So part of what goes on is, you know, we've got to beat, you know, um, the Chinese um, to the to the streets. I mean, ultimately, what does it matter if, if China has a self-driving service before we do? It doesn't really, but that's, that's part of the way you get, um, you know, the government's motivated here to allow these things on the road is, um, is make these claims. And what Shira was saying is that it shouldn't be that way, right? The primary focus should be, let's get this ready. And as you said, let's, 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 let's make sure it's safe, but and then you know, put it in situations where it can be useful, um, where people need it. Um, that should be the aim. But in order to do that, you need money, you need talent, and, um, and that's the way you attract it, is you make these, these outrageous claims and you, and, and you turn it into a race. Yeah, it's unfortunate that it has been a race. We should all be cooperating in it simply because there's so much societal, fundamental societal value associated with it. Whether it's to help us drive more safely so fewer of us die or fewer of us get maimed and, and whatever, you know, on, on the driving side. And then on the other side, the mobility piece, especially for a substantial portion of our population. Uh, that that doesn't have ac access to, to employment that, that they can't even go get you know go to a, a reasonable grocery store you know that's not there, there there is local mobility challenges maybe it's just Jersey maybe it's just Trenton and and Camden and I doubt it you know I, I think it's it's all these communities where where there's there's so much societal benefit potential out of this. That, that we we really need to continue on and continue to make this. And maybe we, we don't do it when there's fog. We're not trying to solve the pro fog problem. We're not trying to solve the snow problem. We're not trying to solve the hurricane problem. But what about, you know, the, the rest? You know, maybe we can do a lot without doing everything. We will be back, but this is a good time to remind you about our sponsor, the Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF, symbol MOTO. To get more info, head to MOTOETF.com. On the website, look for a white paper. It's called The Smart Transportation Revolution. It's under the Insights and News tab. Some great information there to help you make informed decisions about investing. ETFs, you probably know, can be a, a smart way to spread risk with investments. Maybe focus on a particular category of stocks. That website, again, is MOTOETF.com. We are back with more of Smart Driving Cars and our guest, New York Times reporter and author, Cade Metz. Some other headlines to get to. Uh, Elon Musk says Tesla is upping the price of full self-driving in North America to $15,000 as of September 5th. I guess one of the goals is to get you to buy now. So that's a $3,000 increase. I thought he called it FSD. I don't think he did. He actually say full self driving. Is he still saying that? I don't I think know. I hey, quoted the Bloomberg story. Hey, if, he, if he thinks he can get 15 grand for it, I mean, look, somebody is it, at least he's, I, I don't know. We'll see what the market does. Um, whatever. <laughs> right. A surprise I, at this time, Cade. This has been going on for years, right? Is he, he's had this service and it is called full self driving. You know, that's that is what it is called on the Tesla website. Um, you know, I've I've written about this in the past. You know, there are people who have bought this assuming that that's what they were getting, right? A car that could drive on its own. And that's not the case. You know, they 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 do have this technology that is designed to drive um, the car on its own on city streets. But this is a and has been for years now a beta test technology, initially it was only available to a small number of people, even if you paid $10,000, $12,000 uh, for FSD, if you paid that money, you didn't necessarily get this beta. Um, and you, you were paying you know, that money for, um, for basically you know, you know, nothing beyond autopilot, um, but nothing even close to what you might think of as full self-driving, even the beta is not full self-driving, right? You, uh, I've been in these cars with the beta, 
just like with autopilot, you, you have to keep your hands on the wheel and stay alert at all times, and even more so than with autopilot. Um, you know, it's, it's the same um, situation that all other companies face. Um, you can build a self-driving car that does a lot of impressive things, um, but every once in a while, it's going to make a mistake. Every once in a while, it's going to get into a situation that it can't deal with. And you better have your hands on the wheel and be ready to take over. Is it enough for Tesla to be telling people that, uh, you, look, in, in writing here, it says you have to be paying attention all of the time, even if well, they're calling it full self-driving? That's the debate, right? Um, is that you're right. Legally, they say you have to um, keep your hands on the wheel and you have to stay alert. And that means when things go wrong, um, they, you know, they stand back and they say, hey, we told you not to do this. Um, but the concern with a lot of people is that, especially um, as people get uh, more and more comfortable with technology, that they let their guard down. Um, and, uh, and then those edge cases come up and they're not prepared to deal with it. Um, on top of that, you have situations where it's not just about the technology um, not dealing with a particular situation. There are, there, are, there are cases where it actively malfunctions, right? A lot has been written about what's called phantom braking with, um, with Tesla and autopilot. And that's you know when it just suddenly breaks in ways um, that are unexpected, um, it mistakenly um, uh, you know, sees something in the road or it sees something on the side of the road and it assumes it's in the road and will decelerate um, in, in ways that the people behind you might not expect, right? I mean, it's a complicated, um, you know, it's a complicated situation as we've discussed here. And a lot of people are concerned that despite this sort of system that, that Tesla has in place that protects it, that the company is not protecting the, the owners of the car, uh, the drivers of the car as much as it should. I don't know. I'm, I must run around, you know, a whole different set of people than, than, than what's normal out there. But, but sort of everyone that I think that I know, and every time I've been one of these things, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm almost ready to change my underwear because, because, you know, you, you know, you can't. And I, I know that even when I drive, I misread some things and I hit brakes when probably I shouldn't hit brakes. And I think there's, there's something coming and I jerk and I, of course, you know, and so to me, driving is a very scary process. I mean, I'm amazed I've gotten to be this old because, you know, through most of my life, the highest probability of death was death by auto, you know, and I don't know whether it still is because I'm so old, but you know, what is it from the age of like, you know, I don't know, 15 or something through 40 some, I, you know, somebody can look it up, but you know, the highest probability of death for an individual is death by auto. And, and you know, riding around and driving, um, I know it's supposed to be nice and easy going down the 405 or whatever, <laughs> or, you know, the equivalent the 101 where you are or wherever, or the Jersey Turnpike or Route 1, but I, I don't know. It, it is, to me, it's enormously straining and my goodness, uh, to just think, let the computer do it on, in those situations. What bothers me also a lot about it is that is that to have these systems allow you to come on at, at any speed. I know I know there now is a speed restrictions on Teslas and so on, but there should be speed restrictions on this. I mean, you really need need to do more than nine over. Maybe we'll give you fourteen. I don't know, but all this other stuff that seems to be going on out in the road is like crazy stuff, and and and. Uh, you know, should you just, you know, be switching lanes? Oh, I, I don't know. I mean, it's. Um, Alan, you highlight a piece. when I'm out there. I, <laughs> that's just where I stand. Maybe I'm just a, a, a whatever. I don't know. Kate, any comment on that? Well, I mean, I think you're, you're, you're showing why this, this situation is not necessarily what it, what it seems. I mean, I think if you step back from this, um, what what you need is a system that will 
that will keep you safe, right? Yeah, that's um, what I want. Okay. Do we need a system that requires you to be more diligent, right? Um, you know, do you need a system that can that can put you in situations um, that are potentially more dangerous? Um, you know, why why use this model where you're putting this this system out there that's called full self driving um, that is supposed to take you anywhere and reduce your stress when in fact it does the opposite? Why? Why does that need to be on the road now? Why turn the car owners into testers? Why charge them this much money, um, you know, for something where you know they actually have to be more diligent um, rather rather than less? Um, you know, these these are all open open questions. Um, you know, and one thing where where you're right is this is very different. They're saying. We're going to ensure this is safe. Once it is safe, we're going to let people use it. Now, Tesla is the opposite, right? We're going to put this out on the road, um, you know, and we're going to continue to improve it while it's on the road. And the the owners of the car um, are are the testers, um, not our private employees. It's a very different situation. Alan, they they probably a... deserve to be paid. In other words, maybe Tesla should be paying people $15,000 if they go out and are testing FSD. Maybe that's the way it should be, right? Well, you, you, you can make that argument. Um, I can make it. There are a lot of people who are willing to pay the money for yeah. FSD. <laughs> you know, and, it looks like that's the way it is, but you know, if you go back, yeah, hey, I'm an academic. You go back and look at the economic. Yeah, should be what? Never mind. Go ahead, uh, Alan. Uh, along these lines, I mean, you highlight a piece from Electric, uh, and they've got their AI day at the end of next month. Tesla yeah. has released a, a new picture of its upgraded supercomputer, yeah. uh, one of the best in the world. And uh, I know last year at AI Day, you were pretty taken by what uh, Musk had to say. Yeah, I, I'm impressed with the hardware they put together to try to do the neural networks and so on that Kate was talking about. And, and th those are very, very challenging uh, mathematical and, and problems. And, and I guess, you know, my simplistic answer is, is instead of trying to get uh, FSD or whatever you want to call it to work everywhere, hey, get it to work on the operational design domain of Trenton. And provide some mobility, you know, provide uh, 15,000 or, or 30,000 person trips a day to people who could really improve their lives and, 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 and so on and just do it in the small. And, and, and I think you can go collect the data in a that you're trying to get to work everywhere and just get them to work in Trenton and do that for a while and get that done. And, and not then say, hey, the car then has to go to San Francisco and also work. I mean, the, the cars that, that would provide mobility in a Trenton or in a Newark or in a Camden or in a Perth Amboy really stay within that area. One isn't, heck, if, if you want to go to New York, we'll take you to the train station. You can take the, the New Jersey Transit to Manhattan. We don't want these things going into Manhattan. It's like silly. Are you kidding me? And so, you know, let's start there and love to get access to Dojo. And it's wonderful. I, I think, it, you know, I applaud them for putting together the analytical tools behind it to try to do it. Uh, trying to do it everywhere, you know, is more than trying to get to Mars, I, I think. But that's only my personal opinion. I mean, it's tough. No, you're exactly right. I mean, as we discussed at length there, you need to restrict the problem. But I think there, there's, there's, one, there's one misconception here. You know, the, the dream, okay, and this is the way Musk talks about it, is that you collect enough data describing everything that goes on um, on our roads and you feed that into one neural network and it and the neural network learns to drive right um, it does not work that way today right there we don't have as much data as we have we don't have a neural network you know that can take in all that data and learn everything and then drive you know it, it just it does not work that way what you have 
are, are many, many smaller um, AI models that do particular things. Um, you know, you have one that recognizes stop signs. You'll have another that recognizes pedestrians. You know, you'll have another that tries to deal, um, you know, with, with prediction or another that tries to deal with, um, with planning. But all these things have to, be, have to be put together. And it's not like we're just taking all this data and throwing it on one neural network. And, and then it, you come out the other end and the car drives and it does everything perfectly. That's not the way it works. Um, and Musk, you know, talks about it as if it does work that way. And it just, it doesn't, you know, you build a new version of the software, you know, you take some data, you update one AI model, you update another, um, you have to put them all, uh, you know, all back together and test them again. And that's the process, all right? This isn't magic. Um, it, and uh, as much as people in the industry talk about it as if it's magic, it's just not. Yeah, all those things need to be done, but to do it maybe in a little bit local area. Sort of the argument we make around here is that is that in, in a sense, you, you want the attendant on board when you're doing all this stuff because we know it's not going to work. But the reason, the reason for the attendant is not to get the software to work, is to get the people acclimated to the to this system. I mean, the one thing that, that, that I think they're trying to do in Arizona and, and, and San Francisco is to, is to end in, in uh, Las Vegas and Austin is to try to get the people acclimated to these things. I, I mean, I, we use the elevator analogy all the time here. I mean, if you're sitting in 19, you know, before 1945 or something like that, where there's an elevator operator in each elevator, and all of a sudden there's no elevator operator, you know, because there's an elevator strike and, and the people are already somewhat acclimated to the elevator and say, what the heck, uh, you know, I'm not taking the steps. The alternative is so bad compared to this newfangled way to get places like up in a building that sure will do it. And in some sense, to me, that, that's the same reason you, you need to get people comfortable with this thing. And, um, and uh, sure, if they can relate to the elevator and say, hey, I'm comfortable in an elevator, this should be easy, you know, not suggesting that it operates in tubes, but to me, you know, to, I, I, I still think that an algorithm is probably as good as a, as a cable or flange wheels when you, when you get, I mean, elevators still have crashes. People do still die in elevators. Not very many, but, you know, right. still have, nothing's perfectly safe. And of course, that shouldn't be the, the, the objective here. I mean, because if it is, then, then we definitely just, you know, give up. <laughs> we're not going to get, you know, we're not going to get there. I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, I, and it's not just the, it's not just the comfort level of the people inside the vehicles, Alan, this San Francisco examiner has a report to headline did driverless cruise cars have been involved in nine hit and run accidents. And this is when drivers in other vehicles leave the scene because they see there's no driver <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I hit one, there's no driver. I'm, I don't know. Sorry. I mean, it seems like a natural response. There's nobody hold, hold you hold you accountable. And I just dented it. Oh, I, nobody saw that one. I, I don't want, not surprising at all. And not, it, it's part of what happens. Hey, guess what? These, as, as we've been talking about with, with Tesla, these things have so many sensors on there. They have, they have a whole, they have the data to say, hey, yo, you know, <laughs> we see you, uh, you ran away, but you know, if it, it's really important, we can go find you. But um, you know, anyway, that's not surprising at all. Well, Cade, we want to thank you for spending time with us. We really appreciate all of your insights and, and the great work that you're doing. Yeah, really enjoy it. And finally, Alan, saying goodbye to Pete Carrill, who coached Princeton men's basketball for 29 years. He changed so many lives and changed the game. And joining us is one of Princeton's all-time great basketball players, former ABA and NBA great two, Brian Taylor. Hi, Brian. Hey, Fred. How are you today, buddy? Hey, Brian, thanks for pulling over and, and, Hi, and, professor. and turning in with us. Uh, uh, your thoughts on this? I mean, have so much love for the individual and what he did, not only for Princeton, but uh, but for basketball and, and the world. Uh, your thought, your comments. And of course, 
what he did for me. Yeah. I'm very saddened by the loss. Lived a good life, 92, but you figure that's, you know, a long life for a great individual, but you still, it's very saddened. He lived, he lived to be 92, but you're never prepared to lose someone that you love. And so, so many memories, Professor, that come to my mind about Coach, and of course, they're asking me to write about it, and I would just like to share a couple of things that I said about Coach, and Fred would probably remember this because he was there when Coach Carrillo used to come around to watch me play, and all the guys used to say, is that Colombo here to see you? Is he trying to get you to be on his next show? <laughs> I don't know if you remember that one, Fred, but... He would always be there. He would always appear. And I can't remember exactly the the day and time that I met Coach, but boy, it was it was memorable. And I was so excited um, when he was interested in me. And I remember it like yesterday when he called me up and said he got me into Princeton. And I got chills when I heard that because I really wanted to not only go to Princeton to get a great education, but I also wanted to, to be under his tutelage. And what I remember about him, Professor and Fred, is that he was a true critic. <laughs> he never told me how great I was. He always told me uh, the stuff that I needed to work on in order to be great. And in his eyes, I never really got to that point where he was a perfectionist. And all his ex-players would tell you that, that he was such a perfectionist that you had to be prepared to hear it. <laughs> you had to be prepared to hear it from the perfectionist, which I loved uh, playing for coach. And, you know, when I left in 70, well, wow, it's going way back. When I left in 70, 72 to accept a, a great offer from the New York Nats, I, I said some things that, people misconstrued that I was criticizing Coach Carrillo for. But I was asked, there could mean anything further from the truth that I would be critical of Coach because I loved him. I loved what he did for me. I loved what he did for the guys that were there before me and after. So I'm very saddened by the loss of, of a great man and, of course, uh, a great coach to me. And it's a father figure, really. It was a great father figure for us. Uh, I don't know whether it tells you how how bad social life was back in the day because we were always over at his place hanging out, Professor. We were always over there able to get a burger and some trimmings at Coach's house. Um, Brian, Brian, you were telling me uh, previously, in full disclosure, you and I were high school classmates. What, what you were telling me was that a lot of players before, uh, before the coach passed away were in the process of, of putting their stories together to give to him. Yes, I think um, not only to give to him, but for his legacy to be um, forever from the players that spent the time with him and that played for him and, and that loved him and there's those who didn't love him. And I'm, I'm sure they didn't ask the guys that didn't love him to write a chapter or so or essay about him. But yeah, there's probably about 60, 70 guys who put together something in writing. And uh, I'm not sure whether the coach was able to read what I um, sent in. I hope, hopefully he did, because it was all love. And it was all love and the great memories I had for him. So there's, there's probably a 100-page uh, book put, being put together right now for a coach's legacy. And there's also been a lot of talk about how much he changed the game of basketball at the pro level as, as well as collegiate. Yes, and what's really interesting about that is that the individual that gave him the opportunity to have an impact at the NBA level was the great Jeff Petrie. And it's funny, I was reading, um, I don't want to share everything that's in the, in, to the book that will be published shortly. It was one individual who was talking about how Jeff and Coach didn't get along <laughs> especially Jeff's junior, senior year Jeff was hurt he came in with a back he got a back injury and that was that was difficult for the coach to to stomach and so one of the individuals that played with him was talking about how 
they didn't get along, but believe it or not, they reconciled because coach accepted the offer that Jeff gave him to, to coach with the Sacramento Kings. And I think he had a great run for 10 plus years with the Sacramento Kings with, with his former um, great player, Jeff Petrie. Yeah, but, you know, it's not only the contribution to basketball and basketball, but it's also the contribution to your life and the life of so many others uh, who played for them, for him in terms of, of uh, you know, doing, doing great things beyond basketball, uh, not only doing great things in basketball, but beyond basketball. And that's, you know, that's really the, the, um, the, the great uh, contribution of a great teacher, which he was. No doubt. In my memories of him, I thought it was, he was just telling me this, but he told me, don't, don't go into coaching. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, I was reading, it was really interesting. I was reading some of the articles and some of the uh, essays that some of the guys have written. And he was telling that to everybody <laughs> because he thought they were greater than just basketball. Not that basketball isn't great. Yeah. Yeah. But he always felt that if you go into Princeton for this great education, change the world some way and somehow. And that was his message to me. He says, Brian, just don't settle just to, just to do stuff in basketball. Do something that's going to change the world. And for me, it was getting involved in education and hopefully being able to change the lives of young people. And that's something that he always inspired me to do. And um, you know, I love him for it. I love him for it, not just for what he did for me basketball wise, but as a as a young man uh, who was such a he was such a great role model, such a great mentor. And it's off the court that his memories will be long. Uh, he'll be long remembered for the messages that he gave to his players and his friends uh, away from basketball. Yep. True greatness. On the court and off the court, Coach Carrill, I just, you know, like I said, I'm very saddened by his loss, a lot of memories. I, one of my last memories of him was he asked me to coach with him. Uh, when he was with Sacramento, he had an opportunity to coach a Chinese, uh, young Chinese team that was trying to play in the NBA G League. And they wanted to learn the Princeton offense. And so he called me up and he says, Brian, if you if you have some time, I would love for you to come and be my assistant as I teach these young young Chinese players to, to learn how to play basketball the way that you did when you were at Princeton. I said, yeah, of course, coach. And the story goes, about a month later, we spent a month, we had an, uh, we had an interpreter, and coach comes to me and says, well, Brian, I think you're ready. I said, ready for what, coach? He says, the team's all yours. I said, what do you mean the team's all mine? It's just, I have to go to training camp. Training camp starts in a couple of days and, you know, you're, you're ready to take this over. But I want you to be careful about the owner of this Chinese team. I think he's, anyhow, he says, just be careful of him, right? And so I said, all right, coach, if you believe I'm ready to coach this Chinese team to play in the G League, I have faith that, I have faith that you have faith in me. He said, oh, I forgot to tell you one other thing. He says, the owner is also removing the interpreter. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I have to coach this Chinese team as we're getting ready to go into the, the G League without an interpreter, without coach. And I was ready for it. And we played two games. We won the first game. The second game, we lost in a tight game to a Korean team. And afterwards, I got a call from the owner. And guess what? He fired me, so I called Coach <laughs> up. I said, Coach, guess what happened? He says, you don't have to tell me he fired you, right? I said, yeah, he did. He said, Coach, and we laughed after that one. He said, he called it before it happened. He said, you got to be wary of that guy. But what great memory just for him to ask me to be <laughs> his assistant and to hang out with him. You know, we were having lunch and dinner every day for about, you know, six weeks as we were getting these guys ready. And those memories were always be in my heart and you know I could laugh about that um those experiences why do you need an interpreter when they're just x and o's on a, on a, on, a, on a board you know that's I mean, because that Princeton offense was complex 
Mr. Kornheiser. Anyway, anyway, Brian, so nice of you to jump on with us and, uh, you know, a tribute to, to Coach Carrillo. Oh, I, yeah. You know, uh, Love that man, saddened by his loss, and it's always great to talk to you and Fred. So, so okay. thank you guys for asking me to, to say a few words about the great man that he was. Well, we want to thank Brian and also thank Kate Metz for joining us once again. Thank you to our sponsor, the Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF. The ticker symbol for the ETF is MOTO, and more information is available at MOTOETF.com. Technical support is provided by CARTS, the Corporation for Automated Road Transportation Safety, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to safe and high-quality mobility for all. You can find us at smartdrivingcar.com, also on Anchor FM, Spotify, TuneIn, Amazon, wherever you get your podcasts. You can get your smart speaker to play us too. You can find my tech reports at textination.com. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with Alan Kornhauser. Thank you for listening or watching. Please stay safe. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye.